Isn't that a good song? Am I even on? Yeah. <laughs> I heard that song um, for the first time uh, last summer uh, with my wife and daughter at the Worship God Conference in Louisville. Uh, that's uh, Bob Coughlin and Sovereign Grace's uh, ministry there. And um, boy, I thought, we need to sing that song as a church. And so I'm glad we're finally getting around to singing it. And it couldn't have come at a better time as uh, we have started our study of the book of Lamentations, which, um, again, is really all about the nation of Judah getting what they deserve, um, which is not mercy. (laughs) Mercy is not getting, right, what we deserve. And so we know that really in the midst of this book that we're finding out there's no easy way through it. You just kind of got to slog your way through the muck of sin. But right in the heart of the book, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, says that your mercies are new every morning. So that's the irony, I guess, or the paradox of the book of Lamentations, that it's really a book about God's mercy. And uh, we look to God's mercy ultimately in Christ and the cross. And so uh, hopefully we can maybe use that as a theme song for the next few weeks, kind of wear it out here as we go through Lamentations. But uh, today we're going to be in Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. And I decided to title this chapter, In the Hands of an Angry God. Now, if you were like one uh, intuitive high school young man this morning, when he got the sermon sheet, he came up to me and said, this sermon title sounds familiar. And I'm like, exactly. It's just missing one word. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, which was the title of the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil, preached by none other than Jonathan Edwards. And so I didn't want to plagiarize the complete title, so, you know, just in the hands of an angry God. I guess I'm good, copyright, it's public domain by now anyway. But Jonathan Edwards has been heralded as the greatest American theologian and the last great Puritan preacher. And on July 8, 1741, he delivered, again, what is still considered to this day the most famous sermon ever preached on U.S. soil. In fact, it's still um, assigned reading in some American lit classes, in public schools, and in colleges. Edwards first preached this sermon to his own congregation in Northampton, Mass., and it met with little reaction, but the second time he preached it in Enfield, Connecticut, at a church he was visiting, the people in the audience were visibly shaken, and the history books record that they were convulsing and crying out to God for mercy in the midst of the sermon, so much so that he had to ask people to settle down so he could finish. And not only did Edward's sermon spark great controversy, some call it the sermon that New England never, never forgave him for. But it really served to fan the flames of the Great Awakening, which was a spiritual revival that swept across New England back in the 1700s. 
And the point of Edward's sermon was to awaken his, his listeners to the horrors of hell and the, the precarious position of those who have yet to repent of their sin and turn to Christ for salvation. And his text was Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which says this, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Now, this verse was originally spoken by God through Moses to the nation of Israel, about the nation of Israel, but Edwards applied this threat of God's impending judgment to his hearers in his day by reminding them that they were the objects of God's anger and wrath, and it was only because of his sovereign pleasure that they were in hell already. And he urged them to take advantage of the opportunity to come to Christ while they still had time. And if you're familiar with this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I think what's most memorable about the sermon is the graphic metaphors that that Edwards used to describe God's wrath and and, and hell. And and if you're not familiar with it, I I did want to just read a, a portion of this sermon to you. I need to warn you, however, that this will be a shock to your system because we aren't used to hearing preaching like this in our day, and um, this is a much longer quote than I would normally read, but just so you know, Mark Dever once read the entire sermon to his congregation during a Sunday morning service, so I'm going to at least spare you that. But let me just read for you a bit of this sermon. Men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They've deserved the fiery pit and are already, already sentenced to it, and God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell, and they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. There are black black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is set loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. Have you had enough yet? He goes on, 
The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that, and that an angry God that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you rose this morning and that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of those who are damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. How many is it likely will remember this sermon in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time, even before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health, quiet and secure, should be there before tomorrow morning. You have reason to wonder that you are not already in hell. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity such as you now enjoy? Now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. Therefore, let every one of you that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Now, to our modern ears, that probably sounds harsh, even offensive, a bit over the top, but that's only because we don't truly understand how sobering and how terrifying a thing the wrath of God is. It's not surprising that the wrath of God is the most despised and downplayed attribute of God. And yet it is as much a part of God as all of his other attributes, his faithfulness and his goodness and grace and mercy and love. Those are the ones that we like to talk about. We like to play up the nice attributes of God. But for some reason, we have a problem with God's wrath. I remember R.C. Sproul likening Christians when it comes to the attributes of God to going through an all-you-can-eat buffet 
and you come to the grace of God and you want a big old helping of that and you come to the faithfulness of God, you're like, ooh, I want some of that and come to the, the, the goodness of God, oh yeah, give me two helpings of that and then you come to the wrath of God and you're like, Brussels sprouts. And you skip over that because you want to save some room on your plate for something more desirable, more enjoyable. I think it's interesting that when you look at Scripture, God doesn't hide the facts concerning his wrath. He has no problem making, making it known that vengeance and fury belong to him. In fact, you may find this ironic, but there are more references in the Bible to the anger and wrath of God than there are to the love and tenderness of God. Let me just give you a, a simple definition of the wrath of God, just so you know what I'm talking about and what we're going to see here in Lamentations chapter 2. I think God's wrath is simply his settled disposition and resolute action against sin. God's wrath is his settled disposition and resolute action against sin. Simply stated, God's wrath is how he feels about sin and what he must do about sin. God hates sin and he must punish it. And so God's wrath is his holy hatred of sin and his just judgment of sin. And there's coming a day when God will punish sin once and for all and he'll rid the world of everyone who refuses to repent of their sin and chooses instead to rebel against him. And while I appreciate the intent and the spirit of that popular phrase that you've heard, I'm sure, maybe you even said yourself, I've said it, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Have you heard that before? It sounds good. We like that. And I get it. I understand what it's trying to communicate. But it's actually not true. At least according to Psalm chapter 5, Psalm 5 verse 5, says, thou dost hate all who do iniquity. Thou dost destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. This is obviously where uh, Jonathan Edwards got that imagery of God with the bow and arrow cocked back, right? And the only thing that's keeping it from plunging into our hearts is his mercy. He refuses to let go because he's merciful towards us. Well, today we're going to see how God expressed his anger and wrath in judging the sin of his rebellious people, Judah. And here in Lamentations chapter 2, the words anger and wrath are found eight times, and we're going to see that as we go through in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 21, verse 22. But the context here, again, in, of Lamentations, and particularly Lamentations chapter 2, is the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of Judah, which was a direct act of God's anger and wrath in response to their sub stubborn refusal to heed his word through the prophet Jeremiah. 
And in this chapter, Jeremiah continued describing the, the pain and the misery and the heartache that, that Judah brought on themselves as a result of their sin. In Job, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Eliphaz, one of Job's counselors, who was knowledgeable, who was well-intended, said this to Job, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. Now, is Eliphaz's counsel true? Absolutely. That's very true. And he was saying, based on what I've seen, Job, that those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble, they harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. That was true counsel. The problem was it didn't apply to Job. That's not, that wasn't Job's problem. But it did apply to Judah. And I think Job 4, 8 and 9 are really a color commentary on what happened to Judah. Jeremiah had watched Judah sow iniquity for 40 years and now they had reaped what they had sowed and then the nation had come to a brutal end by the hand of the Babylonians. And so Jeremiah wrote these five poems that were intended to read or sound like a funeral march, a funeral song, uh, very depressing, uh, very lilting. Um, and so that's why we know Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. But what he was doing here, and particularly here in chapter 2, he was graphically recording the horrifying harvest that Judah's sin had produced. And we're only in chapter 2, and thankfully God gave us a, a, an opportunity to come up for air last Sunday, right, with the resurrection. Now we're back into it here. But we're going to find that every chapter in Lamentations starts to sound the same after a while. You're going to be like, hey, wasn't that one we just looked at? Um, it, it's kind of the same song, second verse, and if it sounds like that, it's because it's like that. And, and so chapter 2 sounds a lot like chapter 1, uh, more lamenting over Judah's miseries, but it is the most graphic and the most bitter of all the chapters of Lamentations. And what makes this chapter different and sets it apart from the, the first one uh, is it describes more than just the consequences of Judah's sin, but it reveals the the cause of the consequences or the source of the consequences. All the horrible things that Judah suffered were caused by God himself to discipline his disobedient children. I thought of titling this chapter simply Divine Discipline. Because God had providentially ordained and carried out the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of the people of Judah to Babylon in order to bring his wayward children back to him, to repentance. And none of this should, come, should have come as any surprise to the nation of Judah since God had promised them that this is exactly what would happen if they violated the terms of the covenant that they made with him. 
All the heartaches and all the hardships that God's people experienced as described here in Lamentations were predicted some 900 years earlier by Moses. And you may remember back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, before they entered the promised land, Moses clearly laid out for them the the, the blessings and the cursings. And he clearly warned them of the grave consequences of disobedience and rebellion. Turn back with me really quick to Leviticus chapter 26, and you can see one of these uh, places, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 27. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 27, Moses says, yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, again, speaking on behalf of God, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. Wow, that's gross, God. I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, the heap, and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. We are studying the fulfillment of those promises. You can see those again in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 45 to 57. We don't have time to look at those. You can write that down, Deuteronomy 28, verses 45 to 57. The point is simply this. If Judah had only listened to God's word and not ignored Jeremiah, they would have been spared the the humiliation and the, the suffering of destruction and deportation. But God keeps his promises to his people. And not only did he let their enemies prevail over them and destroy them and deport them, but he himself became their enemy. God went from fighting for them to fighting against them. And the Shekinah cloud of God's glory that, was, that once resided over the holy city and in the holy city had long since departed and, and now the dark storm clouds of his wrath loomed ominously on, over the city. And here we find Jeremiah mourning, lamenting. And here he details God's anger and wrath against Judah And it can be divided into three sections here. Verses 1 through 10, we see the anger of Jehovah. Verses 11 through 17, we see the agony of Jeremiah. And then in verses 18 to 22, we see the appeal of Judah. So let's look first of all at the anger of Jehovah. And before I read these first 10 verses... You need to know that there are at least 40 descriptions of the anger of God as he systematically dismantled the city of Jerusalem as punishment for Judah's sin. God became a one-man wrecking crew 
who reduced Jerusalem to a pile of rubble. This was divine demolition. And we're going to see as I read these that God's judgment didn't just fall on Jerusalem, but upon, uh, upon every aspect of, of, of Judah's life. Notice verse 1, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the, inhabita- all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. And he was violently treated And he has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. And he has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He's delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying, and he has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. So along with the loss of their sacred city, they lost everything else that was precious to them. Their temple where they had worshipped, the the feasts and Sabbaths they had celebrated, the the priests who had interceded for them, the, the gates and the walls that had protected them, the homes that they had lived in, the leaders who had ruled over them, the law that had guided them, and the prophets that had instructed them were all gone. And the point is that when we arrogantly disobey God, we invite him to pour out his wrath on us. We make him our enemy. That's what James 4, 6 says. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes us when we are arrogant and prideful and spurn his word but he gives grace to those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at his word. And I think what's so sad about this scenario here is that God had been so gracious to the nation of Judah, giving them so many blessings. 
but they had taken these blessings for granted and as a result, they lost them. And this was the point that Paul was making in Romans chapter nine when he was writing about his fellow Jews. He said, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, I would rather be unsaved and spend eternity in hell so my fellow Jews could be saved and go spend eternity in heaven. That's a radical burden for the lost. But then he goes on to describe the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever, amen. I think all of us could relate in the sense that God has been so good to us, hasn't he? He's been so gracious. He's been so merciful. He's blessed us in so many ways. But we need to make sure we don't take those blessings for granted. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, too often we rely on God's grace and patience to protect us from the consequences of our unfaithfulness. But the Lord will not allow his children to hide their sin behind his mercy. Certainly he will give them ample opportunities to turn back to him, but he usually will not keep them from reaping the wicked harvest they have planted. Indeed, if his people continue to ignore his warnings, they will be taken into God's woodshed to receive the discipline they rightfully deserve and desperately need. Southerners get the woodshed concept, right? How many of you were ever spent time in the woodshed with your daddy, right? With the switch or the belt? Um, but I don't know about your dad. My dad did that because he loved me. Uh, we didn't have a woodshed. We actually had a barn. And, uh, but that's the idea here. This, this is a word from the woodshed is what this is. And so we see the anger of Jehovah in those first 10 verses. But then let's look secondly at the agony of Jeremiah. The agony of Jeremiah. And again, we see Jeremiah going back and forth, talking about Judah and and in and, 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 and Jerusalem as if it's, you know, somebody else. And then he speaks about himself in the first person. And he does that here uh, in verses 11 and, and, and following. But what Jeremiah is doing here is he was describing some of the awful things that he and the people of Judah experienced as a result of God's judgment. The first of which was famine. Verse 11, my eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. The picture there is a, is a baby who, who dies on his mother's chest because she's run out of milk to feed him. It gets worse. Notice verse 19. Arise, cry aloud in 
the night, at the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Who, who have you treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? You know it's bad if you are resorting not just to cannibalism, but cannibalizing your own offspring, which was one of the many horrific things that the people of Judah experienced because of their rebellion against God. They also had to deal with false prophets. Notice verse 13, how shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken as I comfort you, liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. So you had Jeremiah. You had his contemporary Ezekiel, both faithful prophets warning the people of impending disaster if they didn't repent, and yet some of their fellow prophets were flattering the people, misleading the people. They were lying to the people with these rosy predictions of peace and prosperity, and Jeremiah refers to them a number of times in, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Chapter 8, verse 11, they heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And then in chapter 14, this is Jeremiah 14, verse 13. But, ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a, fa- a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they keep saying, there will be no sword or famine in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall meet their end. The people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and there will be no one to bury them, neither them nor their wives nor their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour out their own wickedness on them. It's no wonder that they threw Jeremiah down in a pit. Shut up, Jeremiah. We don't want to hear this. What they wanted was rather than being confronted about their sin, they wanted the false prophets to tell them what they wanted to hear. Just like in our day, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. It says there will come a day when people will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll want to have, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll accumulate for themselves hearers, right, who are, or, or preachers who will basically tickle their ears, right? Tell them what they want to hear. 
And false prophets, I think, are part of God's judgment on people who refuse to hear sound doctrine. And God's like, fine, you don't want to hear the truth? Let me, let me, get, let me put you under somebody that's going to lie to you every Sunday and give you false hope. And the reality is these false prophets or teachers, instead of getting messages from God, they come up with their own messages which lead people astray. Ezekiel compared these false prophets to men who who whitewashed a broken wall instead of exposing its weakness and repairing it. You ever done that? You you see kind of something that's kind of broken... It's kind of cracked. It looks like it's going to fall apart. Well, let's just paint it. Well, that'll fix it. Really? So not only did they have to deal with famine and false prophets, they also had to deal with mocking enemies. Notice verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said, the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? All your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. Kind of like Aggies do when they hear, you know, the Longhorns mentioned, right? They hiss. Um, They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we waited. We have reached it. We have seen it. So Judah had become the object of scorn. They'd become the laughingstock to the surrounding nations. And all of Judah's neighbors gloated with glee over their downfall. And they said, this was the day we've been waiting for. We're so excited about this. But did you notice the enemies of Judah tried to take credit for their downfall? They say, we have swallowed her up. Well, God wasn't going to have that because God wanted to make sure everyone knew that he was the real cause of their calamity. Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And so God wasn't about to share his glory with anyone else. And so he says in verse 17, which by the way, I think is the key to this whole chapter, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you and he has exalted the might of your adversaries. Notice it was he, 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 he. God was simply fulfilling his word. He was keeping his promises to put his people down and exalt their enemies. And so in the midst of this hideous holocaust, Jeremiah felt helpless to do anything except to participate in the grief of God's people and lament alongside them. That's verse 11. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Walt Kaiser has written a great commentary on 
Lamentations, I've been reading it, and this is something he said, quote, no one had labored longer and harder to reverse the destruction of bound forces within the Judean society than God's messenger Jeremiah. But now that the worst had happened, he did not abandon his calloused audience with a weary wave of the hand and a flippant rebuff, well, I told you it would happen. God's love and personal regard for this people can be seen in his sending Jeremiah to express his grief at the hurt that came upon his fellow citizens, nation, and temple. The Bible says, weep with those who weep, and weep, Jeremiah did. He mourned until he was worn out and exhausted from weeping. I think Jeremiah is a great example for us how we should respond when perhaps we've warned someone about the trajectory they were on, the decisions they were making, and now they're reaping the consequences of those decisions. Do we shun them? Said, I told you. You made your bed, now sleep in it. Or do we sit on the ash heap with them? as a fellow sinner, as a fellow sufferer who understands the, 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 the effects of sin in our lives, the, the effects of our own sin, the effects of other people's sin, the effects of just living in a sinful world. We get it. We are fellow sufferers on a planet that is suffering the consequences of sin. And so we need to be like Jeremiah who really was modeling for the people of Judah God's compassion and God's mercy. Let's look lastly at the, the appeal of Judah, which is another way of saying the prayer of Judah. And like chapter one, this chapter ends with a prayer. Notice verse 18, their heart cried to the Lord O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Let your eyes have no rest. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night, watches pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? On the ground and the streets lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. You called as in the day of an appointed feast. My my terrors on every side. And there was no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. So Jeremiah didn't know what else to to do but to to lament, to mourn, to to pray, and to express his complaint to the Lord. Lord, are are you seeing this? What is this? Have you treated anyone ever like you've treated us? And so he's not just exhorting them to cry out to the Lord, 
for help. He's modeling what it looks like to beg God for mercy, even while you're experiencing his wrath to, to lament and to, lamor, to mourn over your sins. And this is what James tells us to do, or told us to do in James chapter 4, verse 8, to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. The guy who wrote Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which, by the way, we bought a bunch of copies of that. It's in the Resource Center. We wanted you to have that available to read along uh, as we study Lamentations. It's a great compliment uh, to this book. But this is what he said. When dark clouds roll in, lament is the path to find mercy even as the clouds linger. Lament is the bridge between dark clouds and deep mercy. Lament is the prayer language that stakes its claim on the promises of God in the pains of life. Let me say that again. You might want to write that down. Lament is the prayer language that stakes its claim on the promises of God in the pains of life. He says, dark clouds may come, but divine mercies never end. And so God is the one, yes, who brought all this on them. And the grief and the pain that he mercifully inflicted on his people was beginning to accomplish its intended purpose. To produce a brokenness and a contriteness, a dependence on the Lord. And we need to remember that the one who wounds us is the same one who can heal us. And so we need to go to him in prayer. And the psalmist gives us a good example. In Psalm 85, verse 4, Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your indignation towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. You see, along with the the promises that God gave his people about punishing them if they disobeyed, He also gave them promises about forgiving them and restoring them if they repented and they returned to him. Probably the most familiar is in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, when Solomon dedicated the temple and said, God, um, if, if we ever stray, would you make this a place that we can come back to you? And he responded, God said this, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways that I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So God is faithful to his promises. His promises of cursing and his promises of blessing. And so there's a, there's a positive and, and negative aspect to God's faithfulness. He, he keeps his promises no matter what. And so the second chapter ends like the first chapter did with the matter through prayer being put in the hands of God. But as the writer of Hebrews says, 
Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the destruction of Jerusalem was an act of divine discipline towards God's children for their sin. We don't have time to read it, but I'm assuming you're very familiar with Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, to talk about the discipline of the Lord. And the, the basic point is God doesn't let his kids get away with sin. The privilege of, of being chosen to be part of God's family includes being punished by God when we sin against him. That's a good thing. It means you're one of his kids. And so we need to remember that it's an act of God's love. It's an act of God's mercy. Whenever we get caught, whenever our sin is found out, and we have to endure God's discipline, the, the alternative is God giving us over to our sin. And not doing anything about our sin, just just allowing us to go deeper into sin, which is an expression of his wrath, according to Romans 1. But God loves his children too much to let us remain in sin, and so when we continue in sin and fail to mend our ways, we cannot, or he cannot, and, and will not just sit back and be indifferent. He will do something. And so he simultaneously demonstrates both his anger and his mercy by dealing with our sin, which shows that he truly cares for us enough to pursue us and to rescue us and restore us to a right relationship with him. And that's exactly how God dealt with our sin on the cross. The Bible says all of us are by nature objects of wrath and deserve to have God unleash his wrath on us because of our sinful rebellion against him. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, decided instead to unleash his wrath on his own son rather than us. And Jesus became the the object of God's wrath in our place. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he endured God's full fury against our sin so we would never have to experience God's fury. And his death completely satisfied the righteous anger of God and that's why Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from the wrath to come. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. And so at the cross, God demonstrated both his hatred for sin and his love for us, all at the same time. It was a convergence of his wrath and his love. Years ago, I used to listen to a lot of music from a guy named Steve Camp. I don't know if you ever heard of him. But one of, I think, the most clever songs that he ever wrote was based on Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he has a brilliant play on words. And I wanted you to hear it this morning as we close. And so we're just going to listen to this 
and uh, take in the, the lyrics, and then I'll come back up and I'll close us in prayer. on your heart the dark and weary place the times you mocked his mercy and trampled on his grace should you be surprised or should you find it all to see yourselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God you built the rocks and bridge Suspended over hell An endless second death You think that you are safe The truth is you're not You face your doom of sinners In the hands of an angry God Now the hands of an angry God Were pierced and bleed Today, receive God's only Son. Turn from your sin. Oh, let all the weary come. For nothing but His grace and nothing but His blood can justify a sinner in the hands of an angry God. God, we thank you that your anger is for a moment, but your favor is for a lifetime. And when our enemy, the devil, rejoices over us, when we're bearing your indignation because we sinned against you yet again, we thank you that we have an advocate with you, your own beloved son, Jesus Christ, who died for that sin and pleads our case before you. Thank you that when we fall, you lift us up, and when we walk in darkness, you Bring us out into the light. God, would you help us to hate sin as much as you do and 
to never make light of it or make excuses for it, but to always see it for the hideous and heinous thing that it is. And God, would you use us to tell others the good news of how they can be rescued from their sin and your wrath through what Jesus did for us on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.